Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around, a watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. Hey, I heard you need an inspiration. He's a lot of end friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day. Every little thing's gonna be A-OK. Little known fact about my guest today, she became a household name playing Abby Whelan for seven seasons of Scandal on ABC, but now she stars on the Netflix hit series Lock and Key as Nina Locke. Welcome the wonderful Darby Stanchfield to the podcast. A-OK. And my guest today is Darby Stanchfield. Darby played Abby Whelan on the Shonda Rhimes hit TV show Scandal for seven seasons. She's also had roles on Mad Men, Castle, NCIS, Jericho, and many, many more. She can be seen in the film Stargirl. Soap opera fans know her and love her as Amelia Jaffe on General Hospital. But most recently, she has been taking the world by storm on the Netflix series <laughs> Lock and Key. She plays the matriarch, Nina Locke. I am so thrilled to get to talk to you today. Thank you. Thank you for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Alana. Of course. Where do I find you today? Taking a little break from LA for a minute after shooting two seasons back to back of Lock and Key. Where you were under lock and key, yeah. from what I understand, <laughs> in terms yes. of being able to make it. Um, I want to get into sort of what it is to film during quarantine, what that meant in terms of people's relationships, both to the work and both to their family yeah. and sort of what it was. But before we get to that, because you led with sort of this beautiful environment that we find you in today. Um, yeah. I'd love to just go back a little bit and talk about where you grew up and how this passion for performing <laughs> entered your, your veins. So where were you born and raised and what was the world of like performing arts in that place? Yeah, so I, um, I grew up out in the middle of nowhere. I was born and raised in Alaska. My dad was a commercial fisherman and um and my mom was just kind of holding down the fort. She was raising us girls and she was his support system. You know, she talked to him every day on the sideband radio and order parts and, you know, order groceries once a year for their boat. And um, she was like this very, this pioneer woman. So I grew up out in the middle of nowhere. It was, 
an island of a population of a few hundred people. The most it would be maybe a thousand people during fishing season, but a lot of the fishermen were, you know, it was just, they were uniquely there for um, the season and they didn't really live there. So the population was tiny and there was no such thing as theater up there. And we didn't even have TV. We had TV for a little while and we had like one channel on TV. So everything you can imagine, you know, cartoons, football, you know, and then your and then your network shows, it would all be on one channel. And so we got very, very little exposure to what was even on in on TV in the seventies and eighties. And so I, uh, my sister and I, uh, we really relied a lot on our imaginations, our big imaginations growing up. We played a lot outdoors, outside, um, or we just made up stuff to do. Um, she became an artist. She's a painter. And, um, as you know, I'm an actor and that that's not surprising considering how much of our childhood, we spent hours pretending stuff, making stuff up, you know, putting our own little plays or skits or just creating scenario, just creating games that were, were just from our imagination. And then we spent a lot of time coloring and drawing and that sort of thing. Um, so that was my childhood all the way up until I was 17. I lived in both Kodiak, Alaska, and then we moved to Dutch Harbor, Alaska, which is even further out. It's in the Aleutian Islands out in the Bering Sea. And then when I was 17, my family moved to the lower 48. Um, and we were in like Seattle, Washington area. So when I was 17, I discovered the theater department when I was a senior in high school. So I guess 18, 18 years old, we, we, we moved to this one school, Mercer Island High School, and I discovered the theater department and um, auditioned for this Noel Coward play um, and got, got a part. I didn't know anybody, but it was, but it, but, you know, it was a big school. It was overwhelming. I didn't understand what cliques were, you know, the people sort of grouped off according to special interests because I had none of that. It was just, you know, my class was like 16 people in my whole class growing up and maybe 50 people in the middle of school and high school. So when we, so when I got cast in this play, I, that, that was the first time I have to say in moving, I didn't, I felt like, oh, I found my place. Um, I wasn't overwhelmed with feeling anonymous or feeling sort of like I didn't belong. But I was like, oh, I found my people. I found my place. There's other people in the world who like make pretend. <laughs> so, oh my God. Uh, that yeah. is an extraordinary thing. You know, Julia Moore was on the podcast and she was in a military family. Mm, so unlike yeah. you who was in one place for all that time and then the shocking sure. like of, yes, thing of being in this shock. big community, hers yeah. was like, Germany and then you know small towns in America and sort of yeah. all over the world and somehow sure. she was saying getting to the one thing that was like the same no matter where she was was like the the school auditorium right like oh that one. sure and yeah. it really it's funny because she really tells the story of like that is the Her place rock. where yeah, yeah like mm -hmm. she, it was just very accepting and yeah and people were like-minded regardless of their backgrounds they wanted to make stuff together yeah um, 
but but the idea that when you say lower 48 by the way I don't know that that's a term that all of my listeners globally will know what you mean so tell me what that is lower 48 means the states uh the United States the uh you know the other the other the 48 states um that are below Alaska that are not Alaska I know it's just a common term that was used up there it's funny um yeah, I, I, yeah, very similar to more. I felt uh, like it was a place that people wanted to create and also a place that I felt like, you know, I felt like theater attracted all sorts of different types of people. And, it, and um, not to say that there's not a lot of different kinds of people who do athletics or different kinds of people who are like the popular people, but it felt like in theater, it was just a really eclectic bunch. And I really, uh, that also, I think, spoke to me. Um, you know, it, uh, because I, I, I don't feel sort of like one kind of person. And I think that's the fun thing about acting too. You get to do all these different things and tell these different stories and jump into different skins of people. And so, yeah, that was, the first time I felt like I was home being away from Alaska, I was like, okay, yeah, I found my, my footing. And so then continued studying theater in college, which uh, I went to University of Puget Sound, which was just outside of Seattle, about 45 minutes outside of it, a small private liberal arts college. Um, my choice wasn't very sophisticated. It was like small. So I felt not too overwhelmed because like, you know, I just came from such a small um, community and I, I, so I think I, and it was close to where I lived and I think, and I'm very close to my family and my sister and I are best friends. So it was nice to be able to see her, you know, whenever I, I mean, not that I saw her often once I was in university, but um, so continued to study theater in, in college, but didn't major in it yet. You know, I, it took me a little while to sort of commit and have the courage to call myself an actor professionally. So but that, when you, you went know. on, I know you went to ACT. Yeah. Um, and was it at that point where you thought, okay, I'm going to give this like a real shot professionally? Yeah. I, it's funny. I, so I had about three years between undergrad and ACT and I was in Seattle. I had moved back home to my parents' place. I was, I had like two or three different jobs, temp jobs. I was waiting tables. I was doing like fringe theater, community theater, conservatory theater. I was doing anything I could in Seattle just to, just to be doing theater. But I, you know, I couldn't make a living from it there. And I didn't know anybody in, in, in LA or New York. I wasn't connected. You know, I didn't grow up in this. I had no connections. I had no friends in the business. I didn't know anyone. So the idea of like, how do I make that lead to a giant city to start pursuing acting was daunting. So even though I was, that was like all my energy was spent in thinking about that and wanting that, I couldn't even call myself an actor really. I sort of would start to say that. But uh, when I was accepted at ACT, I remember the minute I was, I remember the day, the moment I, uh, I got the acceptance letter. <laughs> it's funny. It was a letter back then. I was working at my dad's fishing company. I was temping. I was just doing temp work. Uh, I think I was waiting tables as well, but I was working this other company and the letter came in and um, 
I dropped everything I was doing and I told him somehow I got that letter that day and I told him I was going to ACT to study um, acting in graduate school. And, you know, it was, and he knew like they accept like 24, I don't know what it is now, but it was 24 students uh, out of the whole country, you know, hundreds and hundreds of audition, audition. So he knew that I, you know, I had done something right to be accepted. And I suddenly sort of had this, um, I guess this, you know, confidence all of a sudden of like, oh, I could call myself an actor and respect from him too of like, oh, okay, you're gonna go do this thing. You're gonna be an actor. So from then on, even just studying um, in graduate school, I, once I got that acceptance letter, I was like, okay, I'm on my way. And, um, felt very much like from then on I was I was a professional actor and you know the minute I was done at ACT San Francisco I moved to LA like <laughs> I'm not sure you know I think a week or two went by I packed up my stuff I put it in a U-Haul and I moved to LA so I, it really was the time that I got accepted to that um, training program that I, I felt like that helped me um, just give me the sort of support I needed inside to say, okay, yeah, I'm going to do this for a living. And when you go to ACT, is that a program where at the end you sort of have the showcases where agents yeah. get to see you? And did you, did you get signed yes. or interest before you headed to LA? I, I did very well in the showcases. Um, and that's a very daunting process because, you know, I mean, three quarters of my class didn't get calls, uh, didn't get meetings out of these showcases. But yes, you prepare, you know, a contrasting couple of scenes with a scene partner. And we did a showcase in New York and we did one in San Francisco and one in Los Angeles. And I remember I got like 18 meetings in New York, something very similar in LA. It was a lot of meetings. Um, you know, you don't understand necessarily that, I mean, you know, I, I I don't know that I understood, you know, they're looking at you commercially, they're looking at, you know, they're looking at a lot of different things, but agents, managers, uh, casting directors coming to these meetings. And I, so when I, when I was in New York and we did this showcase, I remember thinking, okay, I'm going to go to every single one of these meetings, but I'm going to pretend like I live here. Like I'm not going to take a cab or anything. I'm going to take the subway. I'm going to eat the little sandwiches out of, you know, like I'm going to try and act like a New Yorker. I'm going to try to act like I'm a New Yorker and then I have no money because this is what it's going to be like right. being an actor. Wait, had you ever New been to New York before? I had been once before, one other time. My mom took my sister and I, we, we, we went and saw a bunch of theater. Um, I saw Jude Law and Kathleen Turner in a play. They played mother and son, um, it, which blew me away. I saw... Um, how to get away with what was it called musical with Matthew Broderick um how to succeed in business yes right. without yes yes yeah you're yes. thinking of how to get away with murder right. and scandal <laughs> I, I know I know all the titles yeah yes. um that's right and you know so sh so I had gone and seen theater um yeah just I think when I was in college or just before just outside of just after college and was blown away by the power of Broadway and like seeing people do this professionally, you know, that this is like, and I had seen a bunch of theater in Seattle, like at the conservatory. 
Seattle Conservatory Theater. Um, there were there were a couple of equity houses, which my my folks would take me, and I just worshipped these theater actors. I just thought, oh my god! I mean, they get to do this for a living. Um, but anyway, back to the showcases. I went to all of the meetings in New York, and then same with LA, and I ultimately settled on LA because I, I just felt, uh, it, you know, I really, I, I, I think I was quite realistic about it. I was like, okay, where can I live unemployed as an actor um, and sort of get along the best? Because I wasn't sure how it was going to go for me because I really knew nobody. So I ended up going to LA and a lot of it had to do with, I was from the West Coast. I had a car, I had like a 10 year old Honda Civic that was still running so I could get around. Um, you know, the open sky, all the space, I think that spoke to me. And I ended up somehow getting in touch with a couple of people I knew from Seattle from the theater scene that I had studied with at a, a conservatory. And that was basically it. And I just started auditioning and um, I, you know, I didn't have my SAG card. I didn't have my equity card. I had, I mean, I was quite green. I had just a master's degree from ACT and, um, it took me a while. I was nervous. I, I think I hadn't had a lot of on-camera training and, you know, most of LA was like TV film commercials. So it was, um, to me, you know, there's an adjustment compared to what you do when you're on stage. Um, and it, I think it took me a minute to sort of <laughs> bring it all down a little bit after theater training. Um, so I ended up getting a job waiting tables. Uh, I had to um, because I wasn't getting hired as an actor right away. Um, so I waited tables, I'd say for about three years uh, when I was first in LA. And then I started to get jobs, you know, occasional guest star. Um, I started to work a lot commercially as well. And that was the way that I was able to um, make money, you know, to pay my rent. When you first started booking commercials, do you feel like it was random or did you figure out some craft for yourself around that? Like, did you figure out, did you crack the nut? Uh, I had, I want to say an angel. I really had some help. I, I was at a really large commercial agency and they weren't sending me out much, but I was having a good response, but there's something about when you're new, I think what I, I found being new, like there's sheer numbers of just getting to go out a lot and getting used to the process. Anyway, there was a, um, there was an actor who got me in touch with his agent. Her name was Emily Hope Webster. And she she was a child actor. She was on a show called Small Wonders. And she had red hair, like she had this bright copper red hair. She still does. We're still friends. She's such an amazing woman. But she uh, went from transition from being a child actor to being an agent. And she was in, she was the head of this, head of department at this commercial agency. And she decided to sign me on and she just started sending me out a ton, like all the time. And I was getting all these callbacks and I was getting put on a veil, which, you know, is like being put on holes, like between you and one or two other people. And I remember going to her office one day and I was so frustrated. And I said, when am I ever going to get a job? Like, when are they ever going to hire me? And she said, oh, trust me, you're, get, you're getting so close. You're on a veil. That basically means you booked the job. But she was so 
patient and uh, such a cheerleader. And she believed in me so much. And uh, before and she was right, it was like, it just like this dam broke. And all of a sudden I was booking everything. And I ended up being like her top booker in her agency. I would do like, I don't know. I mean, in the time that I was doing commercials, I had done close to a hundred nationals um, before uh, I started really doing a lot of TV. So I was doing 13 to 14 a year. Um, I was doing like beauty uh, campaigns, hair commercials for herbal essence and Pantene. And then I was also doing, you know, like the comedy ones with like, you know, the beer commercial being the girlfriend or, you know, uh, you know, the sort of uh, girl next door, you know, the, the waitress at IHOP. I mean, I was doing all of the anthemic commercials for insurance, you know, for all safe insurance. I was, so I was doing a lot of commercials and it was a lot of different types of commercials. So, and, and then, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, that's even different to me than TV and film commercial acting, but it was just, you know, I got, then I just had a lot of time in front of the camera and, uh, and, and I think, you know, from there, I, I found my way. It was nice to be making a little bit of money too. And, you know, and I know like little. when we look at your resume or, or sort of on any random night, there's, there's an episode of something that you will appear on. <laughs> and so I started to like, you know, book, book roles on, you know, yes. guest spots on yes. TV shows. Sure. But oh, well that uh, was happening simultaneously. Yeah. yeah. And, and um, which is great because sometimes, you know, people worry about and I think those lines are much more blurred now than when, when yeah. we started out, yeah. but there was this like, oh, you're a, a commercial actress. And so yes. this idea of like, oh, you don't want to do too many of those because then you're too recognizable sure. from the shampoo commercial to be believable yeah. as this other character on Jericho or whatever you're going sure, sure. for. Yeah. And so I think it's kind of incredible that you didn't get stuck or, or mm. kind of cornered into being I know what you mean. One you know, thing. I never became... I never became like a spokesperson, you know, I was never yeah. like the spokesperson for the T-Mobile commercial or, you know, insurance. Uh, and there, it was such a variety. It was, I mean, there, there was, I was not pigeonholed in one thing. And because my commercial agent, because she had come from being an actor, she, we would have deep conversations about you know, how to protect the theatrical side. And I was simultaneously going out for TV and film and I was booking a little bit of stuff. You know, I diagnosed this murder. I, the very first theatrical thing I ever did was a film with an adaptation of a picture of Dorian Gray, the Oscar Wilde novel. And it was shot in Eastern Europe. And Josh Demel was played Dorian Gray. He played my love interest on it. And he had gone on to do very well with, um, a soap and then you know had got, gotten into tv and the movies and but that was his first feature film and my first feature film and um so i so i was starting to break in a little bit theatrically but even there um you know what i ended up doing i mean it, it was a long process for me uh uh to work theatrically I ended up doing back in the day, I don't even know that they do these anymore, but um, I did these casting director workshops where you could go sit in front of a casting director, you know, pay 20, 30 bucks, whatever, give them your, your, you know, your material, your headshot, 
which there's, I mean, that doesn't even exist anymore. You had jot and resume and then do, do, you know, do showcase material for them. Read it, cold read a scene. And uh, I was working a lot commercially. I was working just a little bit theatrically, but not as much as I wanted to be. I mean, that's 200 of these casting director workshops. I just went for it. I was like, I'm gonna take all my money and I'm just gonna pay to get in front of these people. To and I'm gonna, and I mean, network. gonna meet them, yeah. I know, I mean, I wasn't a big party girl. You know, I didn't know, I wasn't, I mean, I cocked a waitress and I went on auditions, but I wasn't sort of savvy enough to, <laughs> to, that wasn't something that was, you know, like I said, I wasn't from LA or I wasn't from New York. I didn't have family that was in the business. And I, and I just, I've always been a bit of a, I have not been much of a partier. So I, I wasn't one, one to mix and go to events. And so that was my way in. And, um, and it worked. I mean, there suddenly, you know, and I got really good at cold reading. I got really good at picking up a scene uh, and making big choices and, and learning material really fast. And I, that definitely helped me. Because as you know, auditioning is like a muscle on its own. You know, it's like a whole, it's like a whole sort of superhero strength strength on it. It's a muscle. It really is. It's different than when you're shooting a role, studying a role, shooting a role, or doing a role on stage. Different I know, entirely. I know. I was talking to your co-star Josh Molina, and he was like, yeah. <laughs> who was on the podcast recently? He's like, I, I yeah. never, ever get he's like the all I beg for is. He's like, I'll do it for free. Just don't make me audition because I won't yeah. get it. You know, the thing that yeah. you're so right for there, it is, there's just something that happens. I don't know if he said I'll do it for free, but the point was, <laughs> I think, you know. Yeah. Yeah. No, he doesn't like, like to audition. I remember that about him. Yeah. Yeah. That he just Funny. feels like it's not his strong suit. And that yeah. for the most part, the things he've got, he's gotten that sure, have been, sure long lasting came out of a relationship with someone. Sure. Yeah. And it's been the opposite for me. It's all the, all the big, you know, my big breaks with Shonda and even lock and key. I mean, it's all been through auditioning auditions. Yeah. I want to go back to, because before scandal, which was really the thing that I'm sure suddenly, yeah, I mean, a show like that, even just handing out, you know, I told you Dan Bukatinsky is a good friend and even yes. just hanging out with Dan, like he's done 1 million things that's yeah, but he like, won an Emmy. He won know, an Emmy, which is incredible. I mean, so incredible for his career. Yeah, totally. But also just being on the beach with him and like the number of people who are so excited yes. to see him. <laughs> so I would like sure. multiply that times a gabillion for you in terms of how yeah. constant you were in someone's house. But before that, you know, you keep landing on these shows that are so popular because Mad Men was really like a critical darling, as we know, and it, it happened was, in yeah. real time. Like, it's not like people mm -hmm. looked back on it and caught no, on. No, yeah, you're right. It was right. really, really- Immediate. It was immediate. Yeah. And yeah. it was a big deal to get on that show. And, and yeah. you did. And can you talk a little bit about that experience yeah. for you? And then we have to get to Scandal and then sure. Lock and Key. And then yeah, we'll yeah. let you go outside with your pine trees. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, so- so yeah, uh, I joined Mad Men in the second episode that they ever filmed. So they had, sh they shot the pilot in New York and then they came to 
studio right near downtown LA um, to shoot the series. And it was so fun. It was so fun joining an episode two because they didn't quite know what they had. You know, no one had seen it yet. They filmed the pilot and they had gotten some good feedback from AMC, but the world hadn't seen it yet. So I, um, Helen Bishop, my character, um, appears in episode two for a handful of episodes. And then I ended up coming back for the next season for a couple of episodes. And the contrast between that was another show that did table reads. Matt Weiner really liked to do a good table read before shooting an episode. And the contrast between shooting, between the table read of episode two, you know, there was a, I mean, there was, I mean, it was a critical darling, like you said, like right away. So when you say the a, contrast, do you mean in terms of like the spirit of the room or even yeah, sort sure. of the personalities had grown in certain ways? Oh, I or, think all of that. I think, yeah. you know, the spirit of the room, I mean, the way the cast had gelled together. Um, I remember a few people like, uh, you know, now smoking in real life. I mean, after all of that, you know, the sort of. So the table the reading included, up, yeah, it included table props. Yes, that's <laughs> right. And and just the and and the and the celebration too, you know, like I say, the champagne and the the um you know, this there is always a I mean, I experienced it from scandal, being on scandal with my cast members. You know, you become a family and you're sort of on this high together. It's like a roller coaster of emotion and of success and um so it's something that you know you bond over and I could see that with them as well um lovely group it was it was a fun show to shoot um and I you know again it was an audition uh but I do I often feel this way with the characters I get cast and when I read the sides, the scenes for the material for Helen Bishop, I knew who this woman was immediately. I really had a a strong connection to who she was. And I remember Matt Weiner saying to me after we shot a couple of scenes, he said, okay, I didn't know fully who Helen Bishop was and watching you and January Jones, like seeing this. Now I know like you've helped me, you know, it was just something it helped him fill in the blank. So uh, that, that was encouraging to That's hear. Nice. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And and um, it was nice that it went on for a handful of episodes. I really, I like that character. And you never knew if you were coming back or not, right? Like you would just suddenly get a call, like, we want you back. Or yeah. did you know it's six episodes no, it, over two seasons? And No, it wasn't. A, there was no deal for a group of episodes. It really was an open-ended um, guest star. And, um, you know, his uh, his son... Matt Weiner's son in real life I got cast as my son um, in the show. And he was like the little playmate for January Jones's daughter. So he would, you know, he was sort of on the show. And I knew that when he was there, it, there might be a chance that Helen Bishop was there too. She was such an interesting uh, character on the sh- show. You know, um, so many of the women characters, they were either in the ad world, you know, it was either, you know, they were in, that company, the, the ad agency, or they were, you know, a love interest of John Hams of, of Don Draper's. And I love that she was sort of neither either one. You know, she was this very forward thinking, very, very modern woman that was in the neighborhood of the Drapers and, yeah. Yeah. you know, power walked and drove a Volkswagen bug and, 
you know, campaigned for Kennedy. I mean, just awesome. such a such a unique character to play in that. So, so like that. you mentioned that scandal happened because you auditioned for it. Um, yeah. Did you know? Had you done an episode or anything of another Shonda Rhimes show before Scandal was I had, casting? Yes, okay. Linda Lowy. I mean, she was the casting. She was director. my guardian agent there. Yeah, Linda Lowy yeah. was a Shonda Land. Still, I think does some casting for Shonda, but Shonda Land casting director. She had cast me in an episode of Private Practice. I played a uh, a Southern woman, a uh, devout uh, Christian Southern woman who was pregnant with triplets and, you know, had to go into this operation to save the babies. And um, so, yeah, that was a guest star on private practice. And so okay, I was sort that of- That would in... not describe your character on Scandal. <laughs> no, very different. Yes, <laughs> very, like, very different. It's not like, oh, this is a no brainer. So, but she thought you were yeah. really talented, obviously. Sure. And, and, but that, so that right there illustrates the beauty of Linda Lowy. Like she, Linda's very savvy with casting. She, she never, she doesn't pigeonhole actors. She sees an actor and she likes their work and she gives them, I mean, I had read for Grey's Anatomy um totally different kind of character than the private practice one yeah and as you know as you said I mean Abby Whelan from Scandal could not be more opposite from this private practice character so she had, she kept calling me in and I was impressed with how she wasn't calling me in for the same thing right she's calling me for a diverse you know diversity and when Scandal came along it was my understanding that um they'd cast the show and this was the last character of the of the Olivia Pope and Associates to be cast. Like they were, they couldn't find this character, Abby Whelan. They, in fact, they had tested a whole group of women that was really uh, more of the type they were looking for. She was described, Shonda Rives had written a character description for Abby Whelan as 12, 15 years younger than myself, round, cheery, knits a lot, has a lot of cats. Hmm. And, and that, painted a very different picture than um my you. silhouette and my yeah my you know my age my my temperament but again it was like one of these characters she was so cut and dried she was so no nonsense and I just loved it she was so no bs I so identified with that part when of Abby you Leland. auditioned for Abby was she two things was Scandal set up as a pilot or was it already a straight to series just a pilot okay just so pilot. you didn't have the yeah. pressure going in of oh my god if I get this I'm a series regular for sure no for idea time. no idea yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah and um yeah so it was just it was just testing for a pilot and I had just gone in to read and then they had me back the test and um and I you know I I mean Shonda she says you know from the moment she, I she, I came in the room and opened my mouth and started talking she knew that I was Abby and I got done when she was when we were testing and she was there we got done doing the read of like three or four scenes and I finished my scene work and she just sat there and she stared at me like the whole room was silent. The director, Betsy Beers, Linda Lowy, but Sean is in charge. I mean, and she's sitting there and she's just giving me this intense stare. And um, she didn't say a thing. 
I felt like it went on forever, but it was like maybe, you know, 30 seconds to a minute. And I didn't think anything back. I, I was sitting there and I just looked right. I just met her gaze and I just waited. And, uh, and then, you know, she said whatever, whatever she finally did, but I could feel it, you know, in the room. And then I think I had to come back again. And, um, she was really, she was like, she was sure that I was it. And, um, I think I came in the room and Betsy Beer said, oh, I really like your suit or you know, nice suit, something like that. And, you know, Olivia Pope, a character like Olivia Pope would say, oh, thank you. You know, I'm wearing Prada. I mean, you know, or it's, this is Armani. Or, but I said, oh, thanks. It's nothing fancy. It's just, you know, it's a good tailor. It's all about having a good tailor, which is something Abby would say. You know, I mean, like it's, it's, it's a very, you know, it's sort of like the pink elephant in the room. So, and, and Betsy like burst out laughing and I think there was something like, oh God, you know, this girl like coming in here and, and she's saying it like it is. So, and I think a lot of it had to do with where I was at in my life as well. And, um, did you see other women auditioning at the same time? I did time? not. So you were protected not. from that I was anxiety. Protected. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, and I didn't, I mean, I, you know, I knew of course about Grey's Anatomy and I knew that Shonda was successful and of course, you know, you think, okay, Shonda doing a pilot, it's going to go well. I mean, it's going to do at least as good as private practice. Um, so when I got the job, um, you know, even, I mean, it hit in levels, it hit in layers. Um, the thing that you talk about with Dan Bukatinsky being recognized on the beach, I mean, that I'd say maybe a third of the way through season two, I really started to get that space where I, I would see people would freak out when they would see me because I was Abby Whelan from Scandal and cry and shake and drop their groceries and follow me, you know, down the street. And I suddenly was like, okay, I want to get my windows tinted and I need to move out of LA, you know, sort of, you know, I wanted to get a little more privacy. Um, whereas before I, people might know that they'd seen me somewhere, but they weren't sure if they went to high school with me or did they know me from Facebook, you know, it was exactly. more elusive. Yeah. Whereas yeah, yeah, now yeah. it was like, Oh, you're Darby Stanfield. You're Abby Whelan on scandal. Totally different level to be suddenly, and, um, you right, know, to be so allied yeah. with, and, and confused by people yes. as the person that they're seeing, you know, yeah. weekly in their living room. I mean, scandal first came out and we were still watching things week to week. I don't yeah. even the binging now is so different the way people it's consume so different. things the streaming was, yeah. yes but there was the excitement of like the cliffhanger and what was going to happen um yeah what did it mean to you I, I really want to know I mean you talked about Matt Weiner who has a reputation as being like really particular about his lines being said specifically how they've been <laughs> written um sure. I mean sure. understanding that you know I, I think actors even understanding like that, that is still true, even if you've gotten the monologue five minutes ago, or if you've yeah. had a week to study it, like there really is a pressure. Sure. Um, is a Shonda rhymes set like that also? And what is, I mean, she's such a respected, sort of bigger than creator, person, yeah. right? And visionary, visionary. So prolific. Mm -hmm. um, what what is it like being on a show with her? Um, yeah, 
whatever yeah. comes to mind about that, because I know seven years is a long time, and I'm sure it's changed and evolved. And yeah, yeah, we all we all did. We, there was a lot of change for everybody on that show, her included. I mean, the year of yes, she wrote that near the end, and she's just gone through such a. I mean, she's become you know a bit of a mogul now. I mean, with her deal at Netflix and moving beyond ABC. Um, yes. I, okay. First of all, my training in theater, it really, I, I was really trained, brought up and I really, I, I treasured this about my training, which was to always respect the playwright. There was this real respect for the word of the playwright and, and getting that right. And, um, so that was, I mean, unless you're improving, you know, unless it's it's some, it's of that nature, or you're doing clown. I mean, you know, you're 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 creating, you're creating on the spot, you're improvising. But when it's when it's been, you know, it's a it's a play. You're really so that so Matt Weiner was very much that way to the point of like you light the cigarette where it says you light the cigarette. I mean, it, he was so so, so like clinical you know he would go through the sets and fine tooth comb no i want the lunch pail to be red not blue um and Sh and shonda had a bit of that i mean we had a script supervisor that would come up and say okay there's no and in that sentence it's two ums and three dots and then you start the sentence so it was pretty we we were expected to say it verbatim i would say it wasn't maybe quite as I would say that it felt like there was a slight bit more, Shonda just wants you to say the words all right, but she really, really, really wanted you to go for it and put your, she didn't care how you said the words. She just, just say the words, but then say them how you want to say them. So there was a lot of play within that. Um, her speeches, her, her, you know, her dialogue, it's very musical. There's a rhythm. There's a, there's a cadence to it. And there, and obviously there's a pace, which, you know, it was a really, really, that was one note that we actually, we, as a cast got, uh, we got an email during the pilot. She was sitting there every day at the pilot, not so much when we shot the series, she would come occasionally, but while we were shooting the pilot, she was there every day. We got an email from her late one night and it was this long email. And it was like, you have to go faster. This show is not going to work unless you go at the speed of Gilmore Girls or West Wing, this has to fly. And it was, you know, she doesn't mince words. She has a presence, you know, there's this very, like, she can be very intimidating. And that, and that we were all like, okay, we gotta go faster. So there were moments where she would have a really specific, um, you know, she had a thing too about like, she didn't want her characters to wear sunglasses. There might be one moment where Olivia Pope was wearing sunglasses on the beach when she, escapes to the island but aside from that you know she would have certain you know I always wanted she wanted to see the eyes for a character and she wanted you to say um but there but it did feel um and I would say the other unique thing to Shonda Rhimes is I love this about Shonda and I relate to Shonda in this way she is a people watcher and she would watch all of us intensely at table reads and at dinner parties. And she would just take us in. And it felt like, and there's this joke in Shondaland about this, that she writes for 
you and she starts to see you and things that she knows like weaknesses you might have or something that you've always wanted to do or a special talent of yours. And suddenly you see these sort of things coming into your character where you're like, how does she see right into me? And how does she know that that's like a thing of mine or a fear of mine or a passion of mine or that that is a tender spot and that that I need to connect to that. So that, and and we all felt that way. So I'd say that's another thing that is very, very uniquely Shonda Rhimes. I've not met a creator that's quite like that. It's incredible. I mean, seven yeah. years is such a long time. I mean, and and than, it's rare anymore. Right, I mean, I mean so, unless so, you're on SVU for yeah, 25 no, years true. or something crazy. Um, yeah. What a thing to like really get to live in the skin of a character yeah. for so long that you can kind of do no wrong at a certain point because it's just you are her and she is yeah, you. And it's true. I did want to ask you because at one point your character, I mean, people I'm sure can talk about the gladiators forever, right? Like there's a cult yeah. around your show, um, the glorious Carrie Washington and, yeah. you know, and, and all of these incredible people who became household friends to people. I mean, that's what it yes. felt like or aspirational badass women that, you know, people Great. were yeah. really inspired by. But your character, and I've talked to people who have had this in a very high profile project where there's um, abuse in your character's background, mm. right? Where something happens yeah. that that is haunting for this character and becomes really important for viewers who have had some kind of experience like that in their past or ongoing, did you suddenly feel it can be complicated how, how much responsibility you feel for a community of people who have suffered in a way that your character has suffered? Was that a big yeah. chapter in your life with this show or was it in a powerful episode? It was uh, the the abusive relationship that Abby uh, was in that we visit uh, on the show. It's 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 uh, it's mentioned throughout. I mean, it, it you know you see peaks of it, and there were a couple of episodes that really focused on it, where she actually is confronts her her ex uh, husband and has PTSD about it and ends up pulling a gun on him. I mean. But, but so there was the one episode that really focused on that, but, but it was also evident in the dialogue and in the relationships and, you know, she acts out on her love interest in a sort of twisted way where Josh Molina, the the actor that you had on the, on, on your show, he, you know, she slaps him around a little bit, um, she has real, I want to say Abby Willen has really like gut violent emotions. Do you know, like when she's angry, she's really angry. Or when she's sad, she's really torn up. And, and for me, that had to do with her past. I mean, she's experienced some real scary times and she's a raw person and you know, especially when you meet Abby in the first couple of seasons, she's, she's like a, you know, like a wounded cat. Like you don't want to poke her too hard because you don't know what she, you know, her fur is going to stand on end. Um, I, you know, I, I, 
the way that I look at all storytelling is just to be so truthful and honest in the moment with whatever it is. I mean, I, I didn't feel pressure except for maybe in myself. And I really just wanted to make sure I was connected as, as much as I could be to, 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 to that story and to her story. And, um, and, and it's a gift to me when, uh, you know, we had a lot of interaction with social media when we live tweeted, but even people that I've met since then who will say to me, you know, I was in an abusive relationship or I, you know, I, I know someone who's experienced abuse, but especially from people who had been victims to see a character on TV who had, you got to see some of the, but then see her function through it and be a really strong, badass character, like to sort of work her way through it and, and not apologize for it and own it, but also like heal from it, but also like use it in a way like, um, and, and there's something very similar about lock and key, which I'm doing now on Netflix and that my character is a recovering alcoholic and I'm getting very, very similar uh, interactions with people who are reco in recovery and they see Nina relapsing or they see her fall off. the Yeah. Fall off the wagon or go to an AA meeting. You know, they're both series. You get to see the struggle and you get to see the, you know, the, the, the effects of what, that is for the character and you get to see sort of that character deal with it in different ways so i've had a couple of opportunities to play these characters in um, a longer body of work and sustain these these uh character paths that are it's one of the most rewarding things to me as an actor is like when you feel like you can you're not just entertaining but you feel like that you're giving someone a bit of like a connection. They feel like they're seen or it's validating them, you know, or it's healing for them. Or they're like, oh God, I really, you know, I identify. And they just, they get something out of it that um, maybe helps them in their journey. I love that. Well, I want to talk about, you know, the fact you signed on to do another series that you are now probably number one on the call sheet for, yeah, um, which is very exciting. I mean, it's sort of, it's the closest we get to sort of, you know, climbing the corporate ladder in our world. Sure. The, yeah. the, the numbers on a call sheet are, are significant in terms of what your importance to the project is, right? Um, in, in some producer's mind somewhere. Um, sure. But it's also a big responsibility. It's like how you set the tone for a set, your work ethic, your kindness, your empathy, how you treat everyone, right? Like it, people are watching. Yeah, it matters. Um, I've had a lot of lovely examples of good number ones, Kerry Washington being one. Um, and so, you know, I've worked and clawed and worked, worked really hard just to be a working actor. So to get to be in this position, I mean, there wasn't a day I didn't wake up and I feel this way now every day, just, you know, where I wasn't so grateful to be doing what I'm doing and just to go on set on time, prepared, and just to have the most fun, squeeze the life out of every scene and with every relationship and 
I love that these actors on Lock and Key are all so very different. And I'm working with young people, younger people than myself, different temperaments, you know, different um, um, processes, creative processes. And I'm just enjoying every second of it and um, appreciating each person for their own strengths and what they bring and their own challenges. And, um, you know, it's not to say it hasn't been without challenges, but I think that's uh, what part of the long game is, what part of the marathon is. And it's also helped create this family chemistry on our show. Um, so I, I don't know, I just, um, yeah. Well, it's another... obviously resonating because it's number one in like so many countries throughout yeah. the world. Um, incredible. And it is a responsibility when you take on a beloved piece of literature, there's a yes. lot of expectations from the fans that it be yeah. what they want it to be. And they're very vocal. They're yes. very possessive of the material. It means they have expectations. Yeah, they have expectations. Yes. It's their Bible, right? Like this is their yep. thing. And that's right. It's their world. It, must, it is. And, and, and it's a magical world that a lot of people get lost in. It, it, yeah. it saves them. And, mm -hmm. that's true and how thrilling that you get to be at the center of it that you got to do it even during this really intensely um strange time in the universe yeah. um and that you guys no are kidding. able to do it and everyone you know is healthy right now it's just an extraordinary yeah. feat before you go is there a little known fact that you can share <laughs> about Darby Stanchfield Yes, um, the very first role I ever was cast in was the Wicked Witch in Sleeping Beauty when I was in sixth grade. Everybody wanted, it was a little class play in Alaska. It was the only time I ever did a class play as a kid. That was my closest thing to it, you know, being a child actor, but all the girls wanted to be Sleeping Beauty and I wanted to be the Wicked Witch and I got to be, and that was the beginning of the fall. It's so great. Well, <laughs> if you can dig up any photos of you in that role, I know social media would gobble them up. Um, That's true. Darby, thank you so much for coming you, on the Lana. show today and all this time you. means the world. Thank you. Thanks. It's fun to chat with you. One more thing. So many of you have asked, how do you donate to the podcast? Well, it could not be easier. Just go to littleknownfactspodcast.com slash donations. Instructions are clearly laid out. And I'm so grateful to you in advance for any donation you choose to make. But regardless, I have loved, loved, loved making the previous 200 and something episodes for you. I can't wait to make 200 more. I wish you a beautiful day. Stay healthy. Be safe. Until next time. The episode was edited by Nicholas Klar. We recorded in New York City. And the Little Known Facts theme song was written and recorded by Georgia Famusa with backups by Caleb Famusa. <laughs> <laughs>
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.